Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Galatians 5 with us once again. And you should have a handout included in your worship bulletin if you want to follow along with that. We're in a series of messages on walking by the Spirit and what the Spirit-filled, Spirit-controlled life is all about. And last week was, was not a pretty message. We were um, looking at the works of the flesh as they're listed in verses 19 to 21. And I'm hopeful that the next nine weeks will be more uplifting um, as we look away from the works of the flesh and we look at what's referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. I don't know what you use as somewhat of a measuring rod or stick or ruler to determine if you're growing spiritually. I don't even know if you've thought about it in those terms, but if you were to try to kind of evaluate how you have grown in the gospel, in the Spirit, spiritual growth in the last 365 days, last year, how do you evaluate that? Well, I, I think this is not the only way, but a good way would be to look at the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, and ask the series of questions, how am I doing? What kind of growth have I seen? So let's look at our text, please, together. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. So are you less irritable than you were last year? Are you less anxious than you were this time last year? Are you more patient than you were this time last year? Are you a happier person? Is there more peace in your life than last year? Are you more self-forgetful? Do you serve others more than you did last year? Are you more real and transparent and vulnerable with other people than you were last year? Are you less impulsive and binge-prone than you were last year? Are there less outbursts of anger than there were last year? Now, this is just a way of taking the fruit, the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, and putting them beside your life. Now, if you haven't seen growth in any of those areas this year, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're not a Christian, but it should be taken seriously. Because when you see yourself growing, here's the benefit. The benefit of seeing spiritual growth in your life is it is going to give you an assurance of salvation. Second Peter chapter 1 actually speaks to this, that if we're adding to our faith, and it has a list different than the fruit of the Spirit, virtue and brotherly love, then we're going to have confidence rather than forgetting that we were purged from our old sins. So 2 Peter actually says that there is a lack of assurance when we don't witness supernatural growth in our lives. That's to be expected. And so when there's no assurance of salvation, there's no power, there's oftentimes guilt and regret and fear. So I want to encourage us in this series on the fruit of the Spirit, as part of this bigger series on walking by the Spirit, that we will get on the growth track. That if we have not been witnessing spiritual growth, we will ask the Lord to grow us in these ways. Now, I want you to picture with me as we start this morning, two trees. Can you do that with me? So I don't know if you're doing it or not, but I'm hopeful that you're doing it. Imagine two trees, you're walking up the two trees, and they both, from a distance, look to be laden with apples. So you're identifying as two apple trees. And so the natural assumption is that you're coming up on two 
very fruitful apple trees. However, once you arrive, you arrive at the base of the trees and you notice that there's something very different about these two trees in an important way. On the first tree, the apples hang from the stem very naturally, just as you would have expected. But the second tree causes you to be quite bewildered. All the apples on this tree have been tied onto the limbs. So painstakingly, someone has spent hours attempting to make this tree appear to be an apple tree. But close inspection reveals the reality that the fruit was not born from the inward sap of the tree, but from the outward labors of someone seeking to create an illusion. Now I have you visualize those two trees because you'll notice on the chart that we're going to try to provide for you on each of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, not only the definition of that aspect, those nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, but also the, the opposite, the work of the flesh, but also the counterfeit. Because there's actually fruit that looks like fruit that's not actually fruit. So I want to look at these, and we're not going to spend much time on them, but I want you to see them on your chart. If we were to look at a biblical definition of agape love, the love that's spoken of here and throughout the New Testament, here's a good working definition, I think, that I would suggest to you. It is to serve someone else for their good and their intrinsic value and not for what they can do for you. So this love, different than other loves, which aren't necessarily bad loves, but this love is focused on the value of the person that you're serving and not doing it in any way to receive something in return. What's the opposite? The opposite actually biblically will surprise you. Because if I were to ask you this morning, what's the opposite of love? I think many of us would say hate. But actually, 1 John, we read it. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's fear. Perfect love actually casts out fear. It's self-protection. It's using other people to manipulate them so that they can serve you. And here's the counterfeit. The counterfeit of love, which we might think is true fruit, is selfish affection. It's being attracted to someone and treating them well because of what they do for you or how they make you feel. Now, with that in mind, I want us to do a quick 90-second flyover on the contrast between what we mentioned last week, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, some of you are already hitting your stopwatches, but I'm going to try as best as I can just for a quick flyover. He uses fruit of the Spirit rather than works of the flesh. I mentioned last week that works, plural, fruit, singular. Now, that's one of those stubborn things about our English language, isn't it? That certain words can be both used singularly and plural, right? So we have words like deer, and you should not say deers, and shrimp, you should not say shrimps in order to express the plural, and we have police, and we have the word fruit. So fruit can be used to describe a lot of fruit, plural, or one piece of fruit. Well, it's singular here, and it's for a reason. The works of the flesh are kind of chaotic, and there are a lot of them. And you'll notice that from this vice list in verses 19 to 21 as we looked at it last week. But fruit differently, it's singular. So we're not actually talking about nine different pieces of fruit here. So if you thought of the fruit of the Spirit like a fruit basket with nine different pieces of fruit, I don't think we're accurately understanding what is being taught to us here. We should rather think of it as almost like a diamond. 
and it has nine aspects. And every way that you look at it, you can see it from a different vantage point. But it's the same diamond. This is one piece of fruit that has nine aspects to it. Some have actually said that the first aspect, love, that we're going to consider this morning is actually defined eight different ways. So you have loving joy and loving peace and loving self-control and loving faithfulness. I think that's a fair way of approaching it. But here's the flyover. So you didn't start my 90 seconds yet, did you? Here's the flyover. Fruit communicates to us that Christian growth is gradual. I want this to sink in because sometimes we become very frustrated when we don't grow very fast. I don't know how long you've been a Christian and being a Christian simply means that you've come to the place in your life where you understood that you are a sinner. You have violated God's law. And because of that, we're separated from God and we needed rescue. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, God's eternal son, took the payment for our sin on him, his own body on the cross and rose from the dead. And if you believe that, if you trust in him alone, you become a child of God. But sometimes we're frustrated because that's been a long time ago and we're not seeing the kind of growth that we'd like to see. But growth is gradual. It's like a turnip or a potato. We don't see the growth oftentimes. We see the growth after the fact. I know I used to hate this, but I do it to my own children now, and I do it to other children that I see at the double doors when we're meeting regularly. I'll say, wow, you've, you've grown. looks like you've grown. Now, what am I saying? I haven't seen them grow, but I've witnessed the change in them, right? That's the way spiritual growth is. It's gradual. But secondly, it's inevitable. This is important to know that as a believer, you will grow. Having the Holy Spirit in you, indwelling you, you will change and grow. So being born again means that you have new life and that change is inevitable. It will happen. We have verses like Philippians 1, 6, don't we, that say that that work that Jesus started in you, he will complete to the day of Jesus Christ. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He says, we are saved by faith, not by growing fruit. But we are not saved by fruitless faith. One more time. He says, we are saved by faith, not by growing fruit. But we are not saved for fruitless faith. In other words, we should be bearing fruit. It's inevitable. So it's gradual, it's inevitable. Thirdly, it's internal. It's not just outward. This is internal growth that demonstrates itself outwardly. Now, do you may recall, I hope you do, when we were in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, talking about the spiritual gifts, remember all the spectacular gifts that the Corinthians were all about? And Paul there is talking to them about everybody receives a gift when they're born again. We all receive spiritual gifts, some of us more than others, but everybody receives at least one gift to edify the body and glorify Jesus Christ in the body. But remember, he told them that spiritual gifts don't necessarily mean you're a spiritual person. You remember this? I'll bring it back to your memory. It's possible to have spiritual gifts. We all get them when we're saved, but not really be a spiritually filled, spirit-controlled person. The only way to know you're a spiritually filled, spiritually controlled person is not by your gifts, not your ability to speak or serve, or the spectacular gifts. It is your spiritual graces. See, spiritual gifts and spiritual graces are two different categories. Spiritual gifts, we're given them when we're saved. We all get them. All God's children gets them. However, spiritual graces are developed as we grow and we grow in our spiritual growth. 
So just a reminder that you can have spiritual gifts, but still not have spiritual graces. This is internal. And finally, it's symmetrical. That's the big word. Symmetrical just simply means that this is one fruit and we're growing in all of these areas at the same time. Sometimes the counterfeit comes along when people say, well, I'm a pretty joyful person. I just need to work on my self-control. And so they look at these as like different pieces of fruit. And so I, I don't need to work on the joyful part because by temperament, maybe I'm more positive, but the self-control is the area where I need to really work on. What we notice about this fruit of the Spirit is, this is the, these are the various facets of the Spirit's growing us, and they will actually grow symmetrically, not just solo. So we shouldn't look at them as, okay, this is the love week, and next week we'll work on the joy week. It's actually walking in the Spirit, and we will see this beautiful fruit in our lives. Now, with that said, I want us to look at the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit for our consideration this morning. You'll notice the first one that's listed, the fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Now, it is mentioned first, and I believe it's mentioned first because of its primacy in the Christian life. It's already been referenced in chapter 5. And we are told that the, all the commands could be summarized in one word, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. But I want you to notice that there are different words in the Greek, I know you're aware of this, for love than the one that's used here. That was an advantage to the Greek speaker. It's a disadvantage to an English speaker. We have one word, love. So I can say that I love my favorite meal, and I can say I love my wife. And I can say that in the same sentence, but there's a different love that I have for my wife than my favorite meal. But Greeks had this more nuanced language, so they had one, and I've written it down there for you in your handout. They had eros. You hear the word perhaps erotic. It was referring to sexual, physical love. And someone has well said that that generally is all take. And then there was phileo. We hear the word Philadelphia or brotherly love. That's friendship love. It can even be um, used in a different Greek word that isn't used in our scriptures of storge, that's family love, and someone has described that as give and take. But agape was a Greek word that actually wasn't used very often. It was used some, but the New Testament writers and the Lord Jesus seemed to pick it up and use it as the exclusive definition of Christ-like love, which is this, all give. So we have all take, eros, give and take, phileo, but this word, Agape, agapeo, or agapein, means to all give. Giving without any expectation of anything being given back to you. Now, I want to finish with leaving this passage to see a passage that describes for us how we can see this love developed in our lives. And so I want us to turn back to our call to worship. If you could please turn with me over to the right in your scriptures to 1 John chapter 4. Will you turn over there and, and follow along? I want you to see this. I want us to see how we can see through the Spirit of God this wonderful aspect of the fruit of the Spirit developed in our lives. What does it look like? How does God motivate us to do this? So first of all, I want you to see the assurance that comes when we practice love. The book of 1 John was written by who? <laughs> Okay, that was a hard one this morning, right? It was written by John, the apostle. He wrote five books in our New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. John was very old when he wrote this book. 
and in this book, sometimes it can be just a tad confusing. If you're reading the whole thing, maybe in one sitting, it doesn't take that long, you may say, wow, he keeps coming back to similar themes. He actually does. Um, love and light and uh, life are mentioned. But really, the book of 1 John, we're given the purpose statement in chapter 5, verse 13. These things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. So one of the mega reasons that 1 John was penned by the Spirit of God, or through John, by the Spirit, or through the Spirit of God by John, was so that God's people might be confident that they're actually accepted as God's children. Why is that so important? Well, those in this room that have ever struggled with knowing what their standing with God is, you know how paralyzing that kind of fear can be. And the book of 1 John, we could call them tests. There is a series of tests that are available for us to, to test ourselves to see if we be in the faith. And here are the three that keep recurring. Maybe you could think of 1 John like a circling, spiraling staircase. Everybody know what I'm talking about? So, and it keeps coming back to these three themes. Here they are. I can tell you're interested. True obedience, true belief, and true love. True obedience, true belief, and true love. So how does a Christian know that they're a Christian? How does a professing Christian know that they truly have been born again? Well, is there true obedience? Do we obey the commands? Is there true love? And is there true belief? Now, we want to center in, of course, on the true love. And let's look at verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, can you read that with me? God is what? God is what? God is love. So he's going to say the first reason why we ought to love like this is because God is love and we know that we have been born of God if we practice what our Father is all about. He is love. So John surveys the Christian life under this theme of assurance and fellowship, and now he's going to say that all love has its source from where? From God. Do you see that in the first part of verse 7? Love is from where? And then at the end of verse 8, God is what? God is love. So here's what he's saying to us that there's something essential about the character of God that we need to know. This is what God is. Not what God is like. This is who God is. But he says all love comes from God, so let's deal with that first. That means that all the love that we witness, what we call common grace, in our world, where does it find its source? God. So if you're listening to your favorite oldie station and you're listening to some perhaps some old love songs from your teenage past or even your teenage current and you've ever thought wonder who thought this love thing up i mean people loving each other and spending their lives to each other and romantically talking and singing about each other who thought this up well you know as good theologians all love comes from where from god He's saying that love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. Now, let's be careful. He's not saying that everybody who practices any kind of human love is automatically sure that they've been born again and that they're saved and that they're a child of God. 
there is common grace that we see even unbelievers practicing love. I mean, that's probably why there's a Hallmark channel for those of you that love that. I mean, love and all the source of love is from God. But then he takes it a step further at the end of verse number 8, and he says God is what? God is love. Now, this is very important. There are only three times in your Bible that tell us that God is something. Now, this is very important because he is not saying that God has a characteristic and one of his characteristics is love, amongst other characteristics like faithfulness. No, he's saying that there's something essential. We talk about God's attributes in a variety of ways. We talk about his essence and his attributes. So when we talk about his essence, we're saying this is what God is. So I speak as a fool, if I could take God and place him under a microscope, what would I find? How is he made? Of what substance is God made? Well, those three passages are this, these passages. John 4, the woman at the well, Jesus says to her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So metaphysically, God is a spirit, okay? He's incorporeal, he doesn't have a body. So secondly, we see in 1 John 1, verse 5, that God is light, which is telling us about his character, his essence. He's holy. But here we're told God is what? Love. So like oceans are wet and like suns are hot, God is love. Now, when you think of God, how do you view him? Do you view God as a God of love? Or do you view God as an exacting, harsh, easily irritated, vengeful God? How do you view God? One of my favorite preachers of the past and and writers was a man by the name of A.W. Tozer, and he, used, he had this quote, and his quote was, what comes to our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. So I just want to do a little quiz on you right now. When you think of God, and you think about who he is, and what his character is like, what is your impression? Do you view God as this exacting God who's never pleased with you, or do you view God as a God who is love. See, what he's saying here is this is God. God is a God who's benevolent and kind and giving and sharing. And this is the very nature of God. And there, there are times where believers have the upside-down, twisted view of who God is and what his character is like. And do you see the argument? He's saying if you have been born of God... You're going to be like God, and what is God? God is love. So do you see it here? He's saying that DNA, if you've been born again, you have God's DNA flowing through your veins. What kind of person are you going to become? A what? Loving person. Do you see that? This is a pretty basic logical argument that if you have been born of God, he's your father, you're going to mirror the attributes of God. And his essence is love. So that same grace, that same mercy, that same kindness, that same generous spirit, we would expect to start oozing out of true believers. But he says the opposite is true as well. 
if we don't start seeing that kind of self-sacrificing love that's not manipulating people and serving people because what they get, then we should be concerned that we have not been what? Do you see it? Born of God. Stay with his logic here. John is saying this is the DNA. That's why we should love. If you've truly been born of God, Ephesians 5 says that we will imitate the Father's love just like a child imitates their parents. Now, we are way past this stage, but there used to be a time, and unfortunately, some of those toys still exist because my wife keeps them there, but there was a time where everything in our basement, in our home in New Hampshire, and even when we moved here, was a replica of adult stuff, right? So you got tables and dishes and dolls. I mean, all of their life was like pretend. It was imitating big people stuff, right? And one advantage is it was a lot cheaper than the big people stuff that I have to buy my kids now, right? But, but it was all imitation. And I don't know about you parents, but I've always mourned the fact that my children typically imitate the bad habits, not necessarily the good habits of their father. But, but, but what we're being taught here is one of the ways that we know that we're a child of God and one of the ways that we, we know that we will continue to develop in this kind of love is if we have been born again. We will imitate our father. Are you seeing that in your life? Are you seeing this kind of self-sacrificing love that focuses on the intrinsic value of the person and not what they can do for you in return? Are we on that growth track? I want you to see, secondly though, what was the manifestation of this love? How do we know that our God is this loving? Can you give us a picture? Can we see this? Well, that's what 9 and 10 say. In this... Right in this moment, the love of God was made clear that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Now, when I was in college, I took a I was a business minor that shouldn't impress you because I don't know that much about business. But I had a class that I enjoyed on marketing. I, I, I was fascinated by it. And one of the things that they talked about way back then was one of the things that you do that's brilliant is to take your, your product and wrap it up in a person, a personality. So if somebody can be identified with that product that people admire or like or want to be like, then all of a sudden you've got sales. Like, for instance, we have Air Jordans. I mean, and that was the big talk at that point. I'm revealing my age just a wee bit. Wrapping it up in a person, that's exactly what we have here. Where was God, the God of love, so clearly visible? Where was it unmistakable? Well, it was unmistakable when Jesus, God's son, took on the sin of the world and he bore our sin on the cross. He rose from the dead and now whoever turns to him in trust and repentance is born again. That was the moment where this love of God was displayed. Are you clear on that? I know you've heard the gospel, and probably everyone here today and those viewing perhaps have heard the gospel. I've already repeated it a couple times today. But do you see in the gospel the grand demonstration of how much God loves you? Or do you take away from that, I'm glad it got me into heaven, but I still need to try to earn his favor? Are you trying to be good? Are you trying to 
be good so God will answer your prayers or give you power in your life. I mean, we looked at Galatians, and Galatians 5, remember this statement, it's, it's, there's no, no law anymore. After all those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, it says, in which there is no law. What does it mean to live under law and not grace? Well, it's to think that you're doing something to at least keep God loving you. I, I've met Christians who are good with, I know that I was saved by grace alone. But keeping myself saved in good standing and acceptability to God, I've got to try to do something. You know, I've got to do my hire, right? Well, maybe I could illustrate it like this. Husbands, this is a horrible idea, and wives it is too. But let's imagine, and this has happened to me, um, your wife asks you, sweetheart, why do you love me? Now, I just want you to know that's a setup. You, you, you're not going to answer in a correct way. But let's, let's imagine you have that conversation. Let's imagine that you're even more foolish and you answer it this way. Well, I'm glad you asked, dear. I, I just viewed you as the most serviceable lady out there. You're the one that could help me accomplish all of my goals and dreams. And I looked at other women and I just didn't think they could help me like you've been so serviceable to me. And I ran it on the computer and did my research and that's how I landed on you sweetheart. Now, you know what would be the result of that. You, you may not live. <laughs> she may not talk to you the rest of the day or for the rest of the year. Who knows? But, but you know what she's really getting out? And not that I've totally psychoanalyzed my wife, but, but I, I have learned something. What they're really getting out is what all of us want to get at. We're hoping that we find nothing actually behind the love. Because if you find something actually behind the love, why do you love me? then there's that, I've got to keep doing that in order to stay what? Loved. So, so if there's something behind the love, why you love me, besides just you're beautiful and you're kind and those kinds of things, but if there's something that I'm doing, then I'm now more discouraged because I've got to keep what? Keep doing it. Now, while I understand that there's some dynamics in a marriage, that those, that's a fine conversation to have. Please, I know the illustration falls apart a little bit. But if you take that mindset into your relationship with God, it is fatal. If there's anything behind the love of God that you have done or are doing that keeps him in love with you, then you need to be very afraid that you're going to stop doing it and his love will end. It's conditional. But his love, we're told, he loved us before we loved him. We didn't come after him. It, his love is spontaneous. It is not conditional. It is not attached or caused by anybody's uh, efforts. I, I want to prove this to you. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, the discussion about why Israel was chosen, here's what God said. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for your, for, for you were the fewest of all people. But now he's going to give the reason why he chose Israel. Hear this. But it is because the Lord loves you. <laughs> so you love me because you love me? Yes. I, I love you because I love you. How's that make you feel? There's nothing behind the love. I mean, we look at Ephesians 1 and we're trying to scratch our heads. He's loved us and chosen us before the foundation of the world. And we keep trying to say, what was behind that love? you hear people say, well, maybe it was because he knew I would choose him and I would put my faith in him. Well, now you just conditioned the love. You made the God the servant of you 
or, or maybe he thought I was going to be a really good Christian, and that's why he loved me. I mean, he looked down the corner of time and said, that's going to be a good one right there. He says here, I loved you because I loved you. There's nothing behind the love. There's no conditions. And what he's saying here is that was never more clearly seen than when Jesus was on the cross. And finally, what is the practice of brotherly love? We're not going to get to that last point, so I'm going to end with this. What does that look like? Look at verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then very curiously, he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What he's saying here is we are able to demonstrate the very nature of God to an unbelieving world by loving each other this way. You've heard of theophanies in the Old Testament. That is when we have visual representations of God before he was incarnate. Like, for instance, when Jacob was wrestling with God in Genesis. Those are called theophanies. But in John 1.18, we're told nobody's ever seen God, but Jesus has revealed him. And what we're told here is that the invisible God is most clearly seen in our day, not by the incarnate Christ, he is in heaven, but it is through the love of believers. That's why Jesus said this in John 13. You know what's going to make everybody know you're my disciple? It's not going to be having 15 things you're against on your church sign. It's not going to be necessarily that this church, they take standards seriously. Or they only sing the deep songs. Or whatever your little list is. He said, no, actually, here's what everybody's going to know. There's something, a signet, a, a, a flag, a symbol. Those are followers of Jesus. It's going to be this unique love that we have for one another. So what should happen at East Brandywine Baptist Church? What should happen at East Brandywine Baptist Church is when people come into our homes, they ought to see audiovisual. This is what love looks like. This is what a God who is love looks like. When they come to our worship, when they come to our events, when they see us at work, when they see us at play, is that what they see? Please finish with me in our text, Galatians. If you go back to Galatians 5, he's spoken about love and he's spoken about the problems in that context. And I want you to see verse 14 and 15. Here's what's happening in their church family. Verse 14 of chapter 5 in Galatians says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not what? Consumed by one another. Some people call this Christian cannibalism. Christians that are biting and backbiting and arguing about this and arguing about that. And folks, let's be honest. We live in a present moment where it's not just the arguments outside the church, but we've got these things snipping at the heels of us as believers. And he says, if we don't love each other, we're going to bite and devour each other. And then look at verse 26, and we'll conclude here. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, you know the kind of person that provokes another person, envies another person, wishes that they had that other person's possessions or acclaim, or is sad when they're successful or happy when they're sad? What kind of person is like that? A person who's not secure in their love from God. I want to encourage you that the confidence that 1 John speaks of, that perfect love casts out fear, that if we are convinced that we are loved by God. 
that we could not be any more loved by God than we are right now, that is going to give us the confidence, the courage to love other people without asking for them to give us back. I could face rejection. I can face people speaking ill of me if I'm confident in God's love. Do you remember that John, who I asked you earlier who wrote the book of John, and you were good. I think we got 100 on that quiz. But John had a name for himself in his gospel. He didn't refer to himself as John. He referred to himself as something else. Does anybody remember how he referred to himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, what do you think the other 11 disciples thought about that? John, I mean, that was pretty arrogant, man. I mean, when his book was done, the ones that were still alive, which weren't very many, but I'm sure there was this thought. I mean, who do you think you are saying you're the disciple whom Jesus loves? It's almost like the teacher's pet. I don't think that was their response at all. And when you come to passages like 1 John, you realize that he was so overtaken by the love of God in Christ that in chapter 3 he goes, look at this love. It's amazing. And so I believe that John got a hold of this. I'm the disciple who God individually loves with everlasting love that cannot be improved upon it cannot be earned if you had that kind of confidence that your creator your redeemer has that kind of individual love for you how would it change how you are able to love other people i want to suggest to you it would radical radically change the way we're able to love one another i could finish with an illustration perhaps like this most of us in this room are not independently wealthy. In fact, I think I know all of you, and I don't think anybody in this room is independently wealthy, which means you're so wealthy you don't need to work, all right? But imagine that you are. Imagine that you have, you, do, you don't have to go to work, so you don't, you don't have to worry about your time. You could give your time. You could give your possessions. Let's imagine you got billions and billions in a trust fund, and you can live off the land until you retire, until you die, and there's not going to be a problem. You don't need to work any longer. Imagine what you could do with that time. If you were wanting to invest it in people, you could actually say, you know what, I don't have to go out and work for an income. But most of us do, all of us do. And so we're on in that situation. But imagine if you were independently wealthy with love. What if you knew that the only person's opinion that mattered, the God of heaven, is committed to you in a love that nothing, Romans 8 says, 16 different possibilities could separate you from. That he could not love you more. You are the disciple whom Jesus loves. How would that change your boldness, your ability to love people freely without wondering if they're going to give back to you, without the counterfeit of manipulation? I believe it would radically change it. And that's why later on in this passage in 1 John, he says, perfect love casts out fear. The opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. It's not allowing yourself to be vulnerable, not allowing yourself to be open with people because you're scared that you will be rejected. But if you had the confidence that nothing can separate you from the love of God, how would it change you? I want to finish with this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, there's no safe investment in love. Listen to this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, 
You must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. What is Lewis saying? Lewis is saying this kind of selfish love, if you can call it that, is always protecting itself and never making itself vulnerable. But love that casts out fear is the kind of love that this is a wonderful aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Let's ask God to direct our hearts into this love. Believer, maybe you need this week to spend some extra time on your knees praising God for His unconditional, sovereign love. You need to drink that in until it becomes part of your soul. You know, sometimes you'll hear psychologists, current psychologists say, the way to love other people is you've got to first love yourself. I don't believe that's biblical, and I believe it's actually counterintuitive for us to say what we're saying today. Actually, it's not that at all. It's actually understanding you're loved by God, which frees you to love other people the same way. This is truly the fruit of Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it pierces our hearts and confronts our lives. And we confess to you that we have often participated in the counterfeit where we have shown niceness to people, but all together hoping that we will get something in return. This kind of self-sacrificing love that sees the value, the intrinsic value of the person we're serving without any desire to receive anything in return was demonstrated by your son Jesus. And we praise you for the love, for the redemption, for the propitiation that all the wrath has been borne away. And we pray now that you would free us to love, grow us as a church family to love one another. And we pray that that love would be a testimony, a audiovisual testimony to your greatness and to your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand.